0: Hello and welcome to Re-Energise. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Ben Moore, Marketing Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry players working to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal energy sectors. In this month's episode we will dive into the hidden world of subsea cables. The UK starts well ahead of the game in the sector, with our subsea cables network carrying the world's highest output of offshore wind power, and we are already the world leader in subsea engineering, manufacturing and services for the oil and gas industry. With that being said, offshore wind cables require a surge of technological innovation in the coming years if they are to cope with the scale-up of offshore renewable energy and deep water operations required to meet the UK's ambitious net zero targets. So, without further ado, let's meet today's guests.
1: Okay, Alex, hi there, um, I'm Alex Newman. I head up the team at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, team of electrical and materials engineers who deliver test and specialist services to the transmission and distribution and renewable sectors, focused specifically high-voltage insulation system development. Within that, the, the specialist areas for our team specifically subsea cables and high-voltage bushings and general power system development. Um, the last few years, we've been um, heavily engaged with supporting the offshore renewable sector Array cable systems step up from 33 kV to 66 kV, um, and also developing our capabilities to test export cables, AC export cables, which are predominantly used in the UK up till now. And we also serve the growing market for failure investigations, but no doubt we'll we'll talk about that later on in the, the podcast.
2: Thanks, Dan Sumner. I'm a project development manager here at Catapult. I work in the operational performance team. Uh, And my job, generally, it is to go out and find people with new technologies, new skills, new services that fits a market need, that fits a a gap in the knowledge at the moment. And then try to support those services through grants or through uh, various different ways of getting them time with facilities and experts to be able to commercialize their product. I also work on joint industry programs to try to bring people around the table to fix a known issue. My background was in subsea survey, so I'm absolutely not an expert like Alex or Charlotte on the call today, but um, I've spent a lot of time looking at cables subsea, a little bit of installation work as well. Thanks.
3: Hi, I'm Charlotte Strang-Moran. I'm an electrical engineer from the ORE Catapult's operational performance team. I'm mainly focused on subsea cables and their accessories, and I am the lead engineer on the Electro project.
2: Thanks,
0: everyone. I think the first point I want to pick up with you is um, what the current industry challenges with cables are. So would someone like to kick us off and talk about the current processes for cable
2: installation, maintenance and and decommissioning? It's a huge question. When I saw the show notes for today, I was thinking you could do a whole university course uh, around that question.
3: Well, I guess we could start by saying that the cable's life really begins with design, manufacturing, and then there's the storage and then the transport before installation even happens. process for installation requires vessels to lay the cables. It's heavily reliant on the weather. There is a lot of challenges around if you're able to actually go out on your vessel to install them before you even begin the process.
2: Even before we, we get to installation. But after design, there's route surveys, there's geotechnical surveys to be done, identifying what boulders are along the way. Do you need to move them? What's the movement like where you want to lay your cable? Are the environmental conditions right? Are there any UXOs in the way before you even finalise your route, before you even get onto your vessel to to go lay the thing uh, and to trench it?
3: You need to make sure as well that the design has suitable cable armouring, as well as the burial of the cable to protect it, which is normally up to around one to two metres. Where you can't bury the cable, you have external protection as well, such as concrete mattresses, rock dumping or cement bags.
1: From my perspective, a key part, which is often overlooked because it's it's not part of the action that sort of occurs after the cable leaves the factory door and gets loaded out onto the vessel. Very much about the qualification processes, post-design development work. Then there's the the pre-qualification and the qualification test work that gets carried out. And I think the the point I wanted to raise on today's chat was was very much about that being fit for purpose and the the fact that the standards scenery that revolves around or that cable system development revolves around is very much based on dry cable design and land cable design. What we're doing nowadays is um, we're bundling three cores together. I'm armoring them up and putting them underwater and expecting them to last for 25 years. And I think there are a lot of operational lessons being learned now. And the challenge for us really is to translate those those operational lessons into a more appropriate and, and practically implementable test regimes to make sure that the qualification processes are actually appropriate for the operational environment that these, these cables will be subject to over their lifetime, very much from upfront before it gets to the cable door. There are shortcomings to, you know, to what's being done now and has been done up till now. And I think um, just to put the, you know, the context, I think the, the first offshore wind farm in the UK was in Blythe, I think commissioned late 2000 or early 2001. So we're just hitting 20 years now of operational experience of offshore wind. But the majority of the developments have only been installed in the last eight years-ish. We still are at a very fresh part of the, the operational learning for offshore wind. There are a heck of a lot of lessons being learned now. There's a few failures being seen out there, whether it's exports or array cables or the accessories for either. And the challenge is turning that learning into something that stops it repeating itself. Similar
3: to what you said, Alex, but going back to looking at the cable before it even gets installed. One of the things that's been of noticeable interest from the industry is um, tracking the cable in more detail. Digital tracking from the manufacturing through the different phases, the transport, the storage, to make sure that the cable isn't is in appropriate condition by the time it gets installed. I think that complements quite nicely the idea of improving
2: the standards. For my benefit, what are the obviously can't explain them fully, but who sets the standards at the moment? Is there one unified body that, that looks after this?
1: In Europe anyway, the predominant international Standards used are IEC standards, because, as I mentioned earlier, the issue with the majority of those is that they're not actually written for subsea cables or three core cables, and for that matter they they're written based on single core land cables. They are not directly appropriate. There is Seagray, uh, the international body that gathers specialists of you know high voltage and large power systems around the world, convenes working groups, and delivers technical brochures with guidelines, and those are actually adopted by the industry, generally by developers and consultants to give the more appropriate fine-tuning of the, the IEC. So there'll be gray regulations that refer to an IEC. So the way I see it is that the IEC is the baseload, the, the real baseline that anything's got to pass to get ready for market. gray adds a little bit of um, context to it, offshore context. But both of those, now that in my... Humble opinion here. The, the way I see it is that the c grade turnaround time is two to three years to get something out of c grade. The IEC turnaround time is five to 10 years to get a standard out. So these are not standards and guidelines that lead the market. They very much follow the market. They follow the learning. c grade responds quicker. And the learning from c grade generally goes into IECs and as, as well as other stuff.
0: It's interesting. And do you think, um, Alex and Dan and Charlotte as well, chip in here, you know, that. Cables in terms of the priority for an offshore wind farm, do you think that's sort of gone up the priority list or was it always an absolute priority for owner operators
1: in in your experience? I'm a cable focused engineer, so I'm a frustrated engineer. The way I see it is that the cables, not the last thing to be thought about, but it's certainly not the driver. I think rightly so. Look, the turbines are the power generator. Um, if you're building a power station, you focus on the turbines. And I think that's that's another thing that offshore wind is, has had a challenge with. You're not just building a power station, you're building a power station and a distribution network and a transmission system. That's quite different to just building a power station. So yeah. the same thing seems to be happening in floating wind as well. The balance of plant is seen as a, not the primary driver, but I think that's natural. So,
3: When you're looking at the cables only being about 10% of the original project cost, and the lack of um, reliable evidence that's out there for cable failure, you can see why it's not high up on people's priorities. They don't have to put an awful lot of project cost, and there isn't much consideration to the failures that can occur. But as we all know who are in this call, the cable failure is a, is a common thing. It's an um, in insurance claims, no matter which insurance company you go to. They'll say it's between 70 to 80% of their insurance claims is due to cable failure. It should be high up on the priority list. And as Alex says, um, you can't have this station of power without going anywhere. You need the infrastructure, you need the cables and the joints and terminations to to carry the electricity to shore.
2: So it's relatively low cost, but high risk. If it does go wrong, those are very expensive lay vessels that you've got to go get out to site.
1: I think that there is a natural commercial cycle as well that we are in the midst of. You only fix something if it costs you money. And if insurance tells you that you're no longer insurable because of a poor track record and operational experience. Suddenly the financial director has a say and things get fixed. (laughs) That's quite a simple way of looking at things, but I think we are in the middle and, Coming to to the end of the first round of that learning, really, where the insurance community is saying, now because of these risks and claims and the costs thereof, hang on, this is quite an important part of the system. Hang on, you guys might even be uninsurable. And then suddenly it's like, oh, the the sector needs to do something about that. So standards need to improve. The buyer needs to get more informed in this particular specialist area. We're going through that now, I think. So it's an interesting time to be in cable.
3: Absolutely. The last couple of years, the the premiums have gone up for for cables. And for those premiums to decrease you need to improve the reliability of cables so you can't you can't lower the cost of premiums until you improve the performance of your cables.
1: The big focus for the first 15 years of offshore wind or for the first 20 years actually has been cost reduction and the whole sector has responded really well to that you know generation balance of plant installation it's all dropped its cost remarkably well to the point that um, offshore wind is competitive with other forms of generation. That cost reduction has resulted in a number of effects in the cable supply area and I think there's been consolidation of the cable suppliers um, some of the more premium cable makers have actually left for example pulled out of the array cable market because the margins have been squeezed to that extent that they don't feel that they would be you know the opportunity is greater on high voltage cables rather than selling lots of low margin cables that carry greater risks from a warranty perspective, I suppose. So that cost reduction has resulted in a thinning out of the supply chain. But at the same time, it's also brought in a, a few more suppliers. Example is Hellenic Cables, of, of just one big dogger bank contract for the array cables. Now, you can see that there's, there's a swing in the, the cable supply area there from the established NKT, Nexon's, ABB used to make cables, and you know JDR obviously leading the way from the array cable perspective. Now the margins have been squeezed; the profit margins are not super attractive to entice lots of new entrants to the market. Some of the established suppliers have left this particular place, and one or two new players are coming in. Um, so that's just one thing: cost reductions driven that. And the other thing was very much about the local context around UK suppliers and. UK content being driven into UK projects. The cable supply contract has been quite a, a handy part of the supply contract to count as local content in the UK development projects. It's not a massive amount of manufacturing in the UK. There are two cable makers that reside on these shores. Making a three core cable is relatively not complex, but there are different parts, and I'll briefly describe what goes into it. Firstly, there's making the core. And um, you have to make the insulated power core, which is one core that has the cable in the middle of it, insulation and a screen on the outside. So you make the core first, and then you take that core and you bind it up, you lay it up with three other cores to make a three phase or three core power cable. You add a fiber optic or two, a few bundles of fiber optic for comms to it, and you fill it out with fillers, put some protection on the outside and load some armoring on the outside of that. And that process is a separate process to the core manufacturer typically done in two separate factories. And that's just because of the way they are quite specialist tasks and different factories are required for both. The reason I mention that is that to make a long three-core cable without any human intervention to allow a factory to produce a high-quality piece of output is quite a complex thing when you have two separate factories linking together to make the end product. And the problem is that you have to transport the core from one factory to the other. Now, in the UK context... um, Both manufacturers, I think, that reside on these shores can either do one or the other, but they can't do both in this country. So what happens is the core gets transported across the ocean um, to another factory, either from the UK or from Europe to the UK for laying up or vice versa. When you're transporting between factories, you are limited by the mode of transport and what that can accommodate as far as the length of cable that you can transport between these two when that's being said if you're landlocked you are limited by the length of cable that you can transport on the back of a truck if you are quayside based or riverside dockside based and you can get to the ocean then suddenly you can actually transport much longer length of cable but once again uk context limits the length of cable that you can actually get between the core factory and the layup factory so you are limited to between Norton. and quite a bit less than 10 kilometers, probably less than five kilometers in most instances of how much core you can transport between factories, which means that when you get it into a factory and you want to make a 20 kilometer length, for example, you need to put a number of joints in that that cable, which adds the human factor, which adds the opportunity for um, errors and technical risks as far as longevity of the cable is concerned. So that's a very long-winded way of making a point. So the first point was cost reduction. The second thing is UK content and the the behaviour that has driven. So there are factories in the UK, but by selecting the makers who are in the UK, you're adding additional complexity to the manufacturing process that adds risk to the performance of the cable.
3: Isn't there also some risk around what vessels are available as well? Because if you have a vessel that can't carry your full length of cable, then you have to further joints as well once you're um, out installing
1: yeah and that's that's more of an export cable problem an interconnector where you have extremely long lengths of cable what would you see as a next step to mitigating
2: some, some of those problems either more uk factories or
1: remove some of the local content clauses. no yeah. thank you for yeah. thanks for that that's that was what i wanted to get onto that's that's cracking cause, um, it's an opportunity to get more factories in the UK. Now, that's not easy to do because cable makers are located all over the world and they don't all have full overflowing factories that makes them want to build new factories. So that, that is a challenge. But one would like to think, you know, the, the in post-Brexit landscape that um, this would be high up on the list of priorities is actually enticing inward investment back you know, to the UK. And this is an opportunity to say, actually, if you can put a meaningful contribution to UK content through the cable and transmission and distribution system, there's a quite capex intensity to the, the cable supply section of the contract. Um, and right now, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's not all coming from this country. Some of it's been done overseas, some of it's been done here. So the opportunity is to say, actually, if we are serious about UK content and we do enforce these requirements onto the project, that would force you know, suppliers to actually say, actually, if we want to supply into the UK market, which is booming and can, will continue to do so for the next 20 years, hopefully, there's an opportunity to have a factory that is full of UK projects. And that would allow to get... You know, the footprint going in the UK that could, beyond that, supply global markets.
3: Yeah. It seems to me that there's also an opportunity there for dynamic cables. Since we're moving into this new floating offshore wind, we want to encourage the supply chain to become part of the dynamic cable sector and therefore show them what the size of the prize is, show them the opportunity that there is for joining the supply chain and therefore having them more prepared for... Long lengths of cable and prepare their warehouses. Get new land that they can yeah. have the appropriate equipment.
1: At the risk of leaking the script um, <laughs> leads us quite nicely onto the next question, which is what what more can be done? You know, the, the UK the, a lot of good stuff is happening here, and there is a development pipeline of work that stretches out, and you know, definitely that is one of the reasons why the UK has been the leading installer of offshore wind to date. So that is, you know, continuation of that to make sure that there is a definite market for these um, suppliers to sell into. If you promote a pipeline like that and then you impose local supply content, you know, requirements around that, I guess that is the recipe for, for success in that space, you know, to get jobs and products flowing from the UK.
3: Yeah. To take you back to one of your first points around there being more evidence in the industry towards lessons learned and cable failure that could really support the supply chain um, for those who want to get involved to understand better the risks that subsea cables are facing. So I would say that what more could be done would be to improve the amount of information that's out there for SMEs and organisations to have a better understanding of the challenges. And this could be done through either availability of data from condition monitoring systems, from projects or it could be just from event data that can be collected and then trended and provided to the industry.
1: Couldn't agree more Um, I think you know the more information that's out there it allows people to have conversations and for people to learn about the issues you know if there are serial failures or you know common issues that are being experienced between power system owners there is a need to to share that and you know as we mentioned insurers earlier the insurance community is is reluctant to insure some of these projects because of track record. Yet um, a lot of the information on failures is being kept um, because it is gold dust to financiers and insurance community who are trying to manage their own risks and get their own competitive advantage in this space. Now that that unfortunately doesn't help a bunch of engineers who want to learn from each other. Puts the handcuffs on. But I think you know Charlotte's dead right that we can be involved with supporting industries industry to get more information out there so that people can share and talk about the issues. That will naturally. Um, not naturally, it still needs a lot of work, but it will allow the feedback from the, ex- the, the operational experience back into the upfront design and standards world.
3: And it's currently being done in other industries. So oil and gas, back many years ago, had similar issues. And they now have databases, a variety of different databases for pipes and cables that look at reliability metrics, which provide them with information and insight, which... Um, if we had that in the offshore wind industry, it would be hugely beneficial.
2: When we were speaking to these guys, it was it was quite shocking just the parallels to what almost a lot of the stuff you were talking about just now, Alex. They were saying, you know, this was being discussed you know in the mid 80s and, and remarkably similar conversations we've had in myself and Charlotte with people in telecoms and, and power as well. So I wonder if a lot of this is, is just a big learning curve, the, the age and the growth of the industry that we're in. The cross-sector question is
0: a really good one, and you've, and you've picked up on the oil and gas industry. And, and is there any other learnings from the likes of oil and gas or, or even other industries? And maybe, Dan, have you worked with companies outside of the offshore wind sector who are looking to come in and bring solutions from other, from other sectors
2: in to, to offshore wind? As part of Electrode, and a lot of the background work that Charlotte and myself have been doing on Electrode, we, we really try to look for people that have run similar GIPs and similar databases. So there's one called Arida in oil and gas, and we spoke to some of the guys behind that, and they were pushing very similar lessons learned that Alex was talking about right at the start of the program, talking about what are the standards, what are the processes, you know, right from design through installation before you get it wet, um, and how do you standardize things? They said it was a long, quite a drawn-out process, but they got there. And in a little bit, I'd like to talk about electrodes and how what we want to do is provide a level of insight into the industry, um, yeah, it'd be nice to have some flashy projects. But really, what we're trying to do w- with Electrode is provide data that doesn't cause any sorts of problems with a competitive advantage. That's completely anonymous and provides industry trends that could potentially mitigate a lot of the a lot of things we've talked about earlier.
3: I think something that's worth uh, mentioning here as well is that there are lessons learned that we can take from other industries like oil and gas and telecommunications, but. We have to respect the fact that offshore wind is its own industry, and with that comes its own sensitivities that we have to be aware of. For instance, the offshore wind industry has been moving incredibly fast. We're looking to have much larger turbine capacities and therefore we have to carry much more electricity, and then therefore we have higher rated cable. And that comes with its own risks. The cable system technologies are always changing. As mentioned before, there's the dynamic cables for floating offshore wind as well as possibility of moving to HVDC systems instead of just HVAC. And therefore, the market's different. And we have to ensure that we respect competitive market that we're in. And therefore, we have to respect the anonymity of all those who input their data.
1: Charles, dead right there. It's very different, but my tongue in cheek responds to what can We learn from other sectors and our lab services, renewables, oil and gas transmission and distribution. And you can see the commercial outlook um, is vastly different from all of those. And that is a result of the constant requirement for offshore wind and offshore renewables to drop their prices. That combined with a fast moving technological background with new generators, higher power, higher voltage systems coming online, new technologies, DC, things like that. It's not conducive to cost reduction. That's not what happens in growing systems. Cost reduction happens when you have established dominant designs. And it's almost a conflict of interest there to say, okay, we'll knock all these suppliers on the head, keep telling them to do it cheaper, yet telling them to do it better and harder Mm. at the same time. And I think that, you know, if we learn something, it's almost like we've done cost reduction. Sure, there's more to go. We've got to actually pause there and say, actually, if we want 25-year lifetimes for some of this equipment that's going out there, that might... Be possible to extend that even we've got to allow some margin and margin cost money so a race for the cheapest solution is not necessarily sorry the race for the cheapest capex solution is not necessarily a race for the, the best power system you know over a 25 50 year lifetime
3: i like the fact that you corrected that there to capex because the opex couldn't
1: yeah, exactly. yeah.
3: yeah i think it's worth adding that we're talking about a lot of um risks about sharing information on failures due to the competitive market. But I think we also need to talk about how it's possible to do that. So we need to work as closely as possible with owner-operators and the whole industry to ensure that the trends that we're providing are the trends that people are after, and it's exactly what the industry needs. And without that interaction with the industry, then the the trends that you produce could be, could be pointless.
2: And it's it's now in everyone's interest to do so if you want to bring down those insurance premiums it it might only be part of a larger story but a significant part of it is improving your designs and doing more condition monitoring effectively showing that you can do what you want to do with those cables
3: with the condition monitoring it's a whole other discussion on its own i think when you're looking at condition monitoring you also need to think about how you collect that data and how you use that data you could either use it for Um, forensics to understand a fault that's already happened to your cable or you could use it to predict a cable before it happens and that's the innovation around cable monitoring at the moment is how do you collect your data how can you use your data and how can you create a platform which is user-friendly for the operator to be able to identify key risks before they affect their cable and um, cause that huge increase in their OPEX.
1: Condition monitoring in my view is is a bit of a Oh, I, I don't like it personally, um, and that's a, quite a strong thing to say. But the reason for that is systems should not need condition monitoring. Yeah. Um, systems should be installed for a 25-year lifetime and as such should not be required to be monitored. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the fact that there is such a healthy development of condition monitoring opportunities out there is, is a function of the relatively poor performance of cable system, which is not something we should embrace and continue with. We should fix the problems before they're installed. And, you know, that's very much me banging on about getting the standards right up front and getting the buyers informed that they can specify appropriate cables that do not need to be monitored out there. That's part of the feedback loop, isn't it? We need to learn from mistakes, unfortunately.
3: Being um, contradictory again, um, (laughs) I think um, looking at insurance companies and ways in which premiums can go down gradually, I think. Although systems should be working as soon as you plug them in, there shouldn't be any, any problems at all. Uh, there's a lot of failures that are unexpected, and that's what the insurance industry is there for, is to support repair. I do think that condition monitoring systems are needed, and they're needed to confirm that your system is safe, and therefore reduce your premiums. So if you can show that your cable is in the best health and ensure that your cable uh, can predict a fault before it happens in a way in which an insurance company can say, yes, okay, you have a cable that's being monitored for partial discharge, for temperature, acoustics, and therefore we think that your cable is going to be much safer than one that isn't, and then therefore you get a cheaper deal. So I think that condition monitoring systems do have a purpose. I don't think they should be used to say that okay, we don't need to worry about anything beforehand because we have a condition monitoring system. But I think that they have their own role, the system.
1: Yeah, I think look there's a balance to be struck here, isn't there? Um you know, because of the distributed nature of wind farm developments, there's a heck of a lot of assets out there. And traditionally, the condition monitoring that has been applied has been the likes of DTS, you know, temperature sensing along a cable system, but that's predominantly used on export cables um, because they are the high value items. Fibers are installed in array cables as well, but it's the complexity of the systems that are required to manage and monitor these okay. condition monitoring systems that make them unfeasible and impractical. When you're in a control room and you see all the red lights flashing from condition monitoring systems that are misbehaving um, because of the complexity of the systems, they are the first to be ignored. Even with DTS systems and export cables, they are mostly ignored and utilized when there's a failure. So they are not used as condition monitoring systems because they are incredibly hard to manage and to interrogate and automate. Engineers love developing these things because they are interesting and complex and they do add value. But... There has to be a balance struck with the, the simplicity of the systems that are installed so that they are fit for purpose. And when I say fit for purpose, it needs to be easy yeah. to use, robust, and n- not provide false alarms. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's a challenge, isn't it?
2: There
3: is a lot of innovation in the industry just now looking to um, ways in which you can integrate various systems and to create and not just for condition monitoring system for subsea cables but for condition monitoring systems and scada for the whole system ways in which you can integrate all the different systems that are happening on your asset and i think that that's where the innovation is to be key and i think we need to encourage artificial intelligence machine learning to help put these condition monitoring systems to better use
0: Let's talk a little bit about what ORE Catapult is, is doing in this space directly. And, and Dan, you've already referred to the Electrode project that, that we're running. So could you just elaborate for the benefit of the listeners as to what the Electrode um, project is? Talk about how that maybe reduces cable failure, um, the occurrences and the cost. And also perhaps end on what you need from the industry and how can some of the listeners get involved as
2: well? And of course, Charlotte, you can come in on that as well. As we talked about a little bit earlier, um, there's definitely an industry need for a fairly regularly updated database of anonymized trends around cable data failure. So that's what we're looking to provide. It's an online platform to trend anonymize cable failure data. It's going to be looking at cable defects, the types of condition monitoring systems used, lost downtime and generation, and collate all of that data, trend it, and then give out two different tiers of, of deliverables. One tier is going to go towards, in this case, the, the end users, um, utilities, owner-operators. So if you provide data, you can see your own data in detail against anonymized industry trends. And then the other tier of deliverables is where you just see those industry trends. We don't think there's anything else like that at the moment for renewables. Um, and that's what we're looking to get going. We're calling it Electrode. And what we want to do is get almost everyone... In touch with us because if you're if you're tier one, great, and if you're tier two, that that's great as well. We want to create a, a club of people that are passionate about this and want to drive the industry forward. Charlotte, did you want to add anything to that about the electoral product, or did
0: Dan cover it? In?
3: <laughs> I think Dan covered it pretty well. Having shareable anonymous data uh, means you can support the industry's need for understanding key challenges in the industry, supporting new technologies, and providing evidence to back up informed decisions in improving and adapting standards and guidelines as well as reducing project lifetime costs for manufacturing, installation and operation. So we anticipate that providing access to this information, the industry is able to provide evidence required to invest in new solutions that can in turn then improve the reliability of subsea cables.
2: Okay. That's Thank what you. we're trying to do. At the end of the day, we want to increase the level of insight everyone has so that we can improve reliability. When you're talking about £10-12 for cable export repair, you want to improve reliability. Talking about improving
0: reliability, we'll move over to Alex, and perhaps you can talk about the um, the assets that we've got. Of course, that you that you mentioned at the mm-hmm. beginning and. You were talking about our high voltage laboratories um, and the research going on there. So I wondered if you just wanted to talk a little bit more about that. And also just to refer to a recent blog that you wrote where you you said ensuring that hidden design or material flaws in cables are caught before installation is the mission of my team at our UCAS accredited facility. So maybe you could just discuss some of the work that your team's carrying out as well at our high voltage labs
1: in Blythe. Very good. Thank you, Ben, for that question. I think... As I've mentioned before, we we're doing a lot of failure investigation work, which is the, a start or one point to start. Before that, of course, we we've been running our labs for many years, um, focusing on qualification tests. Being an independent laboratory, we are the quality assured organization that carries out type tests. So we test to standard requirements with the client requirements, and we provide test certificates at the end of that. Under the same team and the same facilities, we also do failure investigation and experimental testing, um, investigatory testing to see how assets age with time and what the residual lifetime is left after aging and post-stress. There's a, quite a unique insight there. Um, most type tests and um, certainly all the aging work very much has a stripped-down visual inspection failure investigation aspect to it at the end of each one just to assess visually the impact of what you've done to it basically so you do the electrical test if it gets through that you strip it down have a look to see if there's any visual impact or visual damage that could compromise its operation service so that that's quite a unique aspect then we, we work on failure investigation so we see what's actually happening in the field Sometimes those mimic quite closely what we see in the laboratories, sometimes not. The collaborative service that we provide with our customers and partners is to actually turn some of that learning from failures into test work that allows you to do things quite differently up front to, to spot those defects and to engineer them out, basically. So um, to bring in failures, new failure modes that are being experienced that aren't being tested for, turn those into proper tests, routines. That's quite a nice little cycle that we feel that we add value in. The challenge is then turning that learning into guidelines and standards that can be picked up by the wider community, and that, that is the challenge. But along with that, we, we also work on um, innovative, innovate UK type projects. One example is we're working with um, Connectrix on a novel water blocking, self-healing water blocking material for um, land and subsea cables. Um, So that's looking at new materials to try and make cable systems more resilient. And again, looking at, um, as Charlotte mentioned, dynamic cables, more flexible cables to try and bring in some sort of flexible, more robust and self-healing element into cable support and protection systems. That's very much the top of our interest area. As I mentioned in my intro, we've, we've done a lot of work in the last five years really on supporting the step up from 33 to 66 kV in array cables. We've also upskilled ourselves and upgraded our facilities to test export cables, so up to 275 kV type testing um, on cable systems is what we routinely do now. Um, I think the challenge for this year is we're about to welcome the start of the build and the test of a 220 kV universal repair joint. Our labs, um, another Innovate UK funded project, which is, you know, has its challenges. The first time we certainly would have done a a large three core assembly um, of that nature. We've done plenty of single cores, but this is a big beast of a cable. So that's, that's an interesting few months ahead for us. Beyond that, um, and well, we're starting it now really, is looking at dynamic cables. That is, you know, we've upgraded our facilities to accommodate fatigue testing of dynamic cables. And once again, this is full-scale fatigue testing. I think, you know, a big part of the mantra of the Catapult is very much test assets and services that could full-scale pre-testing and testing of new equipment that go, you know, before it heads offshore. And, you know, rather learning from these in a controlled test environment um, before they go out, but very much about full-scale testing. And that's um, for dynamic cables in in that context. It's about um, fatigue, bend test rigs, combined with electrical and hyperbaric testing really. um, So we can get the cable wet, get it moving, get it fatiguing mechanically and electrically. And yeah, that's a pretty interesting field for our engineers for the next five to 10 years, I'd say.
0: Charlotte, Dan and Alex, thank you for taking part in today's episode. It's now time to de-energize until next month. In the meantime, listeners can learn more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at OREcatapult.
1: Catapult.